beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, just over a week ago, a new attraction opened up at Assiniboine Park. Uh, it's called The Leaf. Now, the, the Leaf is a uniquely shaped building, and it contains a type of indoor paradise featuring four different horticultural exhibits, including a tropical section, a Mediterranean section, a flower display house, and a butterfly garden. Not only does the leaf showcase beautiful plants from all over the world, but it also houses Canada's tallest indoor waterfall at six stories high. Now, for winter-weary Winnipeggers, an attraction such as the leaf provides welcome relief from the cold and the snow. I can imagine, I haven't been there myself, but I can imagine stepping into that building must be quite amazing in the dead of winter. You're brought right into a tropical setting uh, where life is flourishing, probably brings an immediate sense of re relaxation and, and enjoyment. Now, taking a step back, I think there's more to something like this building, the leaf, than just a relief from winter. You see, when God first made this world, he created it in a state of complete harmony. And God also designed us to live in a world where life flourishes. And we long for that, right? Given that fact that that's how creation was made, that's how we were made, it's no surprising that our hearts long for more than what we have now. Something in us knows that not everything in the world is how it's meant to be. Not everything is right in this world. Creation groans. We face that every time we have a rough day at work, every time we see something break down, every time we hear about a natural disaster, go through a time of sickness, or even experience the death of a loved one. And because these things are a reality in our world and remain a reality in our world, an attraction like the leaf at Assiniboine Park, as amazing as it might be, uh, cannot provide the fundamental change, the lasting change that we need in this world. At the end of the day, we have to confess nothing that humans can make will bring us back into the paradise of God. But that is what we need above everything else, to be brought back into paradise with God. Now, with man, this is impossible. We could never bring ourselves there. But as Scripture says, all things are possible for the Lord. And the good news is that this is the very thing our Savior Jesus Christ came to provide, to bring us back into the paradise with God, as also we'll see from our text from Isaiah 11. And so I bring to you God's word under the following theme. God the Son came into the world to renew a groaning creation and also bring us back into this paradise of God. And we're just going to be working with that single theme for the sermon. Now imagine for a moment you could have been there in the Garden of Eden. No, it must have been absolutely amazing. Now even after the fall... We live in a world where there are plenty of scenes of extreme beauty, right? Think of your favorite place in creation, 
You go there and it's just stunningly beautiful what God has made. Well, then imagine what the Garden of Eden must have been like and, and felt like to be there. It's no wonder that after he created everything, God saw all that he made and declared it very good. Now, as we know, the fall into sin changed all that. The original tranquility and the vitality of creation was shattered completely through sin. In response to Adam and Eve's sin, God cursed creation. Thorns and thistles came upon the earth. The harmony in creation turned to chaos in so many ways, and now creation groans, and we groan too. This is something we read about in Romans chapter 8. There we read, The creation was subjected to futility. The creation now is in bondage to corruption and decay. And it says, The whole creation groans together in the pains of of childbirth. However, thankfully, this was not the end of the story. The curse is not the end of the story. Romans 8 also shows God's promise to renew this groaning creation. As it says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God cursed the ground, but he also promised renewal and restoration. And we see that right after the fall into sin as well, and the curse. God promised to send a Savior who would change things. He declared the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Part of that promise includes the renewal of the earth. Well, that might sound odd at first. There doesn't seem to be anything about a renewed creation in the promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3. However, the rest of Scripture shows that this is the case. You see, as we read the Old Testament, you can see that the Old Testament gives us several pictures of this restoration of creation and of paradise itself, humans and the Lord living on a renewed earth in wonderful fellowship. And the main one that the Old Testament gives, the main one we're going to focus on this morning, is the, is the building of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. You see, when we study the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, we see so many striking similarities to the creation of the world in general and of Eden itself in particular. We're going to go through some of those. Consider the following. Think only of the concept of a temple itself. What was the purpose of it? Well, it was a place where God would live among his people and enjoy fellowship with them. That's the very thing we had in the Garden of Eden. After he made the world, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, enjoying fellowship with Adam and Eve. They were together, a living and wonderful unity. Not only that, but the location of the Garden of Eden and the Old Testament temple was also similar. 
the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. Ezekiel 28 states this plainly. We also infer this from the fact that four rivers flowed from Eden, watering the earth, the source of a river being a high spot on the land. Similarly, the temple in Jerusalem was built on a mountain, Mount Zion. One of the four rivers flowing from Eden was called the Gihon. What source of water was there in Jerusalem? It was a spring of water called the Gihon Spring. Whether these refer to the same body of water does not really matter, but in all likelihood, the name Gihon Spring is meant to make us think of this river, the Gihon, flowing out of Eden. Next, there is a construction design of the Old Testament temple. The entrance of the Old Testament temple faced east. Similarly, the entrance of the Garden of Eden faced east. One of the rivers out of Eden flowed through the land of Havilah, where it said there was, there was gold in abundance, and the gold was good, and there was onyx stone. Gold and onyx appear in the temple. Gold covered most of the inside portions of Solomon's temple. Onyx was also there, and it was also on the priest's clothing, reminding us of Eden. Furthermore, the temple was filled with carvings of all kinds of plant life, such as palm trees, lilies, pomegranates, gourds, and open flowers. And so the interior gave the impression of a lush garden oasis filled with life like Eden was. Along the same lines, in the middle of the temple was the golden lampstand. It was fashioned in the shape of a tree with seven branches, reminiscent of the tree of life in the middle of the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, God placed cherubim at the entrance, guarding the way back in. Likewise, there was cherubim woven into the fabric of the temple curtain, symbolically guarding the way into the Holy of Holies. So that's the design of the temple, similar to the Garden of Eden. Then there is the manner of the construction of the temple and creation. God created the world using seven creative acts, with each one beginning with, and God said. The construction of the Old Testament tabernacle is centered on seven commands of God, beginning with, and the Lord said. The entire process of creation lasted seven days. When his work of creation was finished, God then blessed the people he made. Similarly, Solomon took seven years to build the temple. After it was finished, Solomon blessed the people of Israel. Not only that, but in all these accounts, we see the role wisdom plays in these creations. Proverbs 8 describes wisdom as the agent God used in creating the world. In Exodus 31, Bezalel, one of the main builders of the tabernacle, is a man filled with the spirit of wisdom. And think of Solomon, the main agent driving the building of the temple, a man filled with wisdom from God. That's then the manner in which the temple and creation were made. Then there is the purpose of both creation and the temple. Creation is a place made to display the glory of God and be filled with the glory of God. As the seraphim proclaimed in Isaiah 6, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. When both a tabernacle and temples were built, what happened to them? They were filled with the glory of the Lord. And the final connection I will mention, I know there's a lot. The final connection I will mention here is the aspect of rest. After God created the world, he rested from all the works he had done. He enjoyed his new creation and the experience of fellowship with the people he just made. And throughout the Old Testament, the tabernacle and then the temple were places of rest for the Lord. God is said to rest on the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. Numbers 10 speaks of the glory cloud of the Lord resting over the tabernacle. And because the tabernacle was a mobile house, this aspect of rest is even more present in the temple, a permanent building. You see, in the book of Samuel, God gave David rest from all his animals in the land, or enemies in the land of Israel. And David could build his own house and take up residence there. And while he enjoyed this rest, David thought about the ark of God. It remained in a mobile tent. And so David sought a place of rest for the ark of the Lord. He wanted to build a temple. We sang about that in Psalm 132. And after the seven years of construction of the temple were finished, Solomon prayed to God, saying, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. God then entered the rest that was a temple, much like he rested when creation was finished. And interestingly, when God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, literally it says that God caused Adam to rest there. That's where Adam was with the Lord in that beautiful temple creation of the Garden of Eden, resting with the Lord, enjoying fellowship. So all these things help us to see something of the purpose of creation. The entire creation, and Eden in particular, was a temple, a place to display God's glory, a place for God and man to enjoy wonderful rest together in beautiful fellowship. Adam was like a priest king in the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam the charge to serve and guard the garden. This exact language described the work of the Old Testament priests in the temple. It's the same language. Not only that, but God gave Adam the kingly task of exercising dominion over the rest of creation. And God gave the earth to man as an inheritance. From Eden, Adam was to subdue the rest of the world. Again, kingly language thereby claiming his inheritance as God's kingly son. And through that work of subduing creation, the garden temple of Eden would fill the earth. All of Adam and his posterity would enjoy life in the presence of God in a wonderful temple creation. And we see this purpose for Adam fulfilled in someone like Solomon in a small way. Solomon was like a new Adam, fulfilling what Adam was supposed to do. He exercised dominion over God's creation. 1 Kings 4 describes him speaking knowledgeably about trees like cedars and hyssops 
and about animals like birds, reptiles, and fish. Solomon also expanded Israel's inheritance to the borders that God promised to them. He built and expanded God's place of rest in the land, the temple. And the flourishing of God's people under Solomon is what should have taken place through Adam. Under Solomon's good reign, everyone in Israel sat under his own vine and fig tree. They lacked nothing. They were at peace and rest untroubled by enemies. And so in all these things, what was God showing? His purpose for creation would be restored in Israel's temple and through the king of Israel. We know, however, that these blessings for Israel did not last forever. Sadly, Solomon, the man of wisdom, showed that he was still cut from the same cloth as the first Adam. Even though God had given him so much, Solomon's heart became unfaithful to the Lord. He turned aside to foreign gods and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And although there were some noteworthy exceptions, many of the kings after Solomon did the same. So what happened? Israel and Judah essentially experienced the same judgment that Adam did. They were exiled from the lush garden land that God had given them, driven away from God's presence. And the temple in Israel was destroyed. And we get a picture of that judgment right at the beginning of Isaiah 11. Verse 1 speaks of the stump of Jesse. The tree that is David's kingly line began to bear only bad fruit, and so it was chopped down in God's judgment. One might think that that would be the end of David's dynasty. But God, by His grace and His faithfulness, showed that this would not be the end. He would bring life to David's kingly line. The Lord declares this in verse 1 with the following picture. Out of the stump of Jesse shall come forth a shoot, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This branch, this shoot out out of the stump, is none other than the Messiah, the one to sit on David's throne forever. Listen to how this passage describes this coming king, the Messiah. The way it describes him is that he will be like another Adam and another Solomon. This king will exercise proper dominion over the earth. This means ruling righteously, making just judgments. It also means taking care of creation wisely. Creation will be blessed through his royal reign. After describing his righteous rule in the opening verses, verse 6 describes Eden-like scenes where all creation is brought into harmony. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, a calf and a lion will be best friends, a cow and a bear grazing side by side in perfect peace. The child will even play 
with venomous snakes once so deadly. And the Lord declares, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Notice the mountain again. Just like there was in Eden, just like where the temple was. Furthermore, like they were to Solomon, the Gentile nations will be drawn to the wisdom of this coming king. As verse 10 says, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, just like the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon to hear his wisdom. This is what will happen, but to a greater extent in this coming king. And then verse 10 ends with these wonderful words, his resting place will be glorious. His resting place will be glorious. And I hope by now you can see that this is temple language. His resting place will be glorious. This king will build a much greater and more glorious temple than Solomon ever did. And notice how this king is endowed with a spirit of wisdom for his task. The spirit equips him to build the Lord's temple, the resting place of God. And this promised king, the Messiah who's coming, will be much greater than Adam and Solomon too. Notice he's given a sevenfold measure of the Spirit of God. That's how it's described in verse 2. And endowed with this rich measure of the Spirit, this king will not fail like Adam. He will not fail like Solomon. He will make right judgments. He will never go wrong. He will serve the Lord, and he will never turn away. And this makes him the last Adam, the one through whom God's purposes for the world will reach their fulfillment. You see, the Old Testament temple building showed us something of God's original purpose for creation, but they also give us a picture of how God will renew this groaning creation. The new creation God is making will be a a worldwide temple, the place of God's eternal rest. It's a place of glory, a worldwide temple where we will be at rest in God's presence. The restoration of the world where we are brought back into the temple presence of God will happen through this promised king here in Isaiah 11. Of course, we know this king is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was born in the town of Bethlehem from the stomp of Jesse, just like David his father. He was filled with this sevenfold portion of the Holy Spirit. Upon his baptism, the Spirit of God descended from heaven and rested on him. This King, our Lord Jesus Christ, established both the end-time temple and he establishes a new creation in his resurrection. Jesus said of himself in John 2, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it again. And so the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, of God's new temple, new creation, was laid at the resurrection of Christ. And this is also why Christ was raised on the first day of the week. It's a new creation of God. 
Jesus Christ then ascended into heaven to continue this temple building work from heaven. He's at work to restore and renew this groaning creation. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, he was going away to prepare a place for us. That's what he continues to do from heaven as he continues to establish this new creation. This new creation is the new Jerusalem, which we read about in Revelation 21. And Revelation makes clear this new Jerusalem serves as one big temple city, the place where God will live forever, the place of God's eternal rest. Isaiah 11 says his resting place, the new Jerusalem, will be glorious. And we know that this will be true of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. As the the glory of God is on display in this whole creation, the glory of God will fill that city and fill it in much more marvelous way than we experience now. Revelation 21 tells us that the new Jerusalem temple city has no need for the sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives it light. Again, think of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. When the construction was finished, the glory of the Lord filled those places. And when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, neither Aaron nor Moses could enter there because the glory of God filled it. The same thing happened at Solomon's temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter because of that overwhelming glory. But things will be different in the new Jerusalem, the city temple Christ is making. In eternal life, we will be able to enter the glorious presence of God. We will enjoy His glory forever. And here's where I want to bring us back to Romans 8 again. Verses 14 to 17 explains how we are sons of God through Jesus Christ, and how God has confirmed this to us by giving us the spirit of adoption. And it says there, as God's children, we are heirs together with Christ, and we'll be glorified with Christ. And so in Jesus Christ, we will be made fit to enter into that glorious presence of God and not be consumed by it. The Old Testament priests could not enter the temple when the glory of the Lord filled it. We will enter the new Jerusalem, even though the glory of the Lord will fill it. And that's why the Apostle Paul can go on to say in verse 18 of Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time to be not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. This is the glory of the new creation that is coming, and this is where we are going. We are going to God's eternal rest, His new creation, His new temple. It will be far more glorious than anything we could ever imagine. And I encourage you to use your imagination. Think of something glorious, the most glorious and beautiful thing you can ever imagine. Well, the new creation, 
this temple presence of God, will be far greater and more glorious than that. Everything else will pale in comparison. And so he also says, the sufferings we endure at this present time, and even though that suffering might be very great, it cannot compare with the glory that is coming. There's just no comparison. And notice then how after describing this glory, Paul switches to start talking about this present creation. He says it is groaning. It's suffering under the curse. It longs to be free from its bondage to decay. Longs for that eternal rest God is bringing. The glorious freedom of the children of God. And that new creation a groaning creation is looking forward to that beautiful picture described in Isaiah 11. And we should look forward to it even more so. God is restoring His original purpose for this world. These broken bodies, which experience so much pain and sickness, they will be healed forever. We will always be at rest in perfect peace and tranquility. If you suffer from something like anxiety or depression, that will, that will be gone forever. We will always be at rest in the presence of the Lord. There will only be peace and joy. And yes, right now we groan inwardly, as Romans 8 says, but we groan as those who are looking ahead to the full redemption of our bodies. We're looking ahead. We are Advent people looking to the coming of Christ when sickness, death, and sin will be completely eradicated. And since we hope for these things, says Romans 8, we will wait for them patiently. Remember, even though Christ has already come into this world, we are still Advent people looking ahead to the return of Christ. And as we await that day, let's also heed Scripture's warnings. Scripture says, Take care that there is not in any of us an evil heart of unbelief. As what does Hebrews 3 teach us? Those who reject God in unbelief will never enter God's eternal rest into that new creation. Instead, we're exhorted to believe, to believe all the more in Jesus Christ, the King who came into this world to save it and to renew it. And as we await that day, let's also get to work. See, construction on the new creation, the new temple of God, begins already now. Christ also uses us, spirit-filled people, to build this temple. He works in us to spread everywhere the knowledge of God until, as Isaiah 11 verse 10 says, their earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Amen.